may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the uh, letter to the Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 3, as we focus on uh, verses 11 and 17 and 18 and following. If you were listening to the reading of Colossians, you may have uh, noticed that this is a, a very difficult passage, and it's my privilege to uh, walk you through and in in thinking and reflecting on it. Uh, it is a difficult passage, and, and in fact, uh, the very first argument that my wife Tracy and I had, and I kid you not, we had never had an argument all the way into our engagement, and then we, we came onto this topic and we had a tremendous first argument about uh, this uh, issue around marital and gender roles. And uh, it's something that uh, she doesn't even remember, but I never, I never forgot. <laughs> and it's also the case that many believing Christians uh, in Park Street and, uh, and beyond have had very difficult and different understandings uh, around this question of who leads and, and who follows. And what I want to encourage us as we uh, reflect on, on this particular scripture, engaging this question, what does scripture teach around relationships, family roles, and power dynamics? And Colossians is really focused uh, much on this very question. And Paul is emphasizing that Jesus is Lord over our relationships. And in fact, his lordship transforms human power within Christian relationships. Now, I'm going to focus, if you looked at this text, it's a very difficult text, and there's a lot going on. There's no way I can take you through this uh, in, a, in a short amount of time. So I'm going to focus especially on the wife-husband relationship, uh, but there's, there's more there that uh, if we had more time, we could go into. But I'll focus my attention there but the implications of how the husband and wife are to relate one another, to one another is really infused throughout this text, and it covers all kinds of family relationships and work relationships as well. So how does Christ's lordship transform power in our relationships? And I'll take you through three points. The first is that Christ's lordship transforms relationships because his lordship points to a greater human equality. It points to a greater human equality. Now, if you back up in the letter uh, of, of the Colossians, uh, the topic of authority and power, it runs through the in entire letter. And the central ethical principle in Colossians is in chapter 1, verse 10, where Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And his emphasis is on the Lord. And so we are to order our lives in every, in every facet according to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If that's the ethical thesis of Colossians, the theological thesis, I believe, is in chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. Christ is all. It means that Jesus, he's saying, in other words, Jesus is Lord. He's everything. He's the center. He's the Lord over all, without exception. Christ is all, and he is in all, which means that Jesus alone, as Lord, 
you and I can have a relationship with, directly, without any other mediator. And it doesn't matter the, how we split ourselves up and how we describe ourselves, what kind of identity we might have. We use these sorts of human identities. Much of the reason is to create power differentials between different groups and people in order to decide who's leading and, and who's following. And of course, much of that leads to all kinds of tensions because we don't like how things are being split up. The Apostle Paul, in saying there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. And then in Galatians 3, verse 28, he adds another, which I think is part of the overall list within his mind, gender distinctions, where he says there's neither male nor female. But Christ is all in all. In other words, he is Lord and he is Lord of all and Lord alone. And everyone else is below the line of the Lordship of Christ, which makes us fundamentally equal. And the power distinctions and differentials that often play themselves out within the ultimate understanding of the map of power within the scriptures doesn't work because we're all fundamentally equal in Christ. And uh, he, he, play, he continues to uh, play this out in verse 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, he's bringing us back. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, whoever you're with, you do it in the name of the Lord. He, you are to order every part of your life according to the Lordship of Christ, including your household and your work relationships. And so in verse 18, he picks right up on this. And he lays out these three dual relationships which were commonly discussed in the, the a traditional Greco-Roman household, which were included both family relationships and economic relationships. And he lays out the wife-husband relationship, the child-parent relationship, and the bond-servant-master relationship. And in order to understand the radical teaching of the Apostle Paul and what he's laying out in this text, which is neither traditional nor, uh, nor uh, progressive, we need to understand the Greco-Roman structure around power. Power was concentrated, you see, in the Roman family exclusively around the paterfamilias, who was holding the single role as leader around his home. He was husband, he was father, he was master. And within the Roman legal system, he alone held legal property. He had unmitigated power, not only over his, his literal house, but over all of his sons and daughters, even in, the, in their, their own marriages. He had power. He even had, uh, at least in some expressions, power over life and death. You see, in the, in the, the structure of, the, of power within the Greco-Roman world was this paterfamilias in which he was above and everyone else was below. That's the, the map of, 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 Roman, uh, of Roman power. And without directly contradicting it, throughout this passage, especially in beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3, Paul shows how Christ is transforming human power within all of these relationships, both in the home and in our work. Notice, for example, that Paul directly, in beginning in verse 18, he direct, directly addresses wives and children and slaves. 
And this was actually quite uncommon in a, a, in a Greco-Roman address, particularly when the, the paterfamilias is right there at the center. But no, he addresses these who are, he's acknowledging as equal and as who themselves have moral agency and their own individual standing apart from the authority in which they're under. And then even more shockingly, if you notice, he addresses those who are under authority first. And then those who are above, he addresses second. And that's not by mistake. He's trying to emphasize the equality that exists within this relationship. But then perhaps most importantly, Paul, he makes his appeal to those who are under, specifically around a different motivation, and the motivation to submit or to obey uh, within this Roman, Greco-Roman family structure is the intrinsic authority of the authority who is over you. But not so in what Paul is laying out in, in verse 18. He says, wives submit. Well, why? As is fitting in the Lord. You see, he's bringing everyone back to a very different power map. Not with the paterfamilias above, but he now is below the line with everyone else, and he's appealing to those who are under to act according to the, a single authority, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he does the same. Children, verse 20, obey, for this pleases the Lord. And then bondservants obey, verse 22, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving who? The Lord Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is rearranging the entire power structure. That's what's going on in this text. And the relationship of Jesus Christ as Lord has profound effects upon all relationships in which we find ourselves fundamentally equal. And this is really the starting point when we begin to think about human relationships both at home and in work. But not only does Christ's lordship transform power in, in these relationships around by creating and pointing to this greater equality. He does a second thing. Second, he transforms relationships by elevating this concept of submission, which witnesses to power. Now, verse 18, and this is where we begin to get uh, the, the modern era gets quite squeamish, does it not? Wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So what is this concept of submission? Well, clearly the Apostle Paul does not think that this word is somehow dirty and we should not be using it. No. But it doesn't, it has a power in and of itself. It's not an action. Submission is an attitude. It's an attitude that flows out of the virtue of humility. Uh, it's uh, the, the literal Greek word is hupotasso, hupo, which means under, tasso, or taxis, which means the order. It's putting yourself, it's this attitude of placing yourself under authority. And he's calling, uh, acknowledging uh, the husband's authority, he's calling the wife to place herself in this attitude under her husband. Now, Jesus who is king of kings and lord of lords, he too submits. And so he dignifies this concept of submission. For example, in Luke 2.51, as a young man, as a 12-year-old, it says that Jesus' same word, submitted, 
to his parents, Joseph and Mary. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, as the Son of God, co-equal with the Father, Jesus, it says in 1 1 Corinthians 15, 28, submits to God the Father. And there is this concept of a functional subordination in which Christ is lowering himself and placing himself under authority, though he is not inferior, and he is completely equal. And so I'd like to suggest to you that this concept of submission is a virtue that recognizes equality, a fundamental equality, but it's this attitude that lays oneself low before another. But we, before we go any further, I think it's important that we try to lay out some of the things that submission is not. Submission is not mousy weakness in which you're cowering in fear. Submission is not failing to put forward your ideas and offering your thoughts and and your counsel. Submission is certainly not uh, failing to challenge inadequate ideas of authority or the, the dumb ideas that perhaps your husband might be putting forward. And submission never goes along with sin because of you always serve a higher master. And let's also be clear that submission can never be used in giving place for abuse. Physical and emotional abuse within the family is, to use Paul's words, not fitting in the Lord. And too often this teaching around submission has been weaponized to justify ongoing abuse. And the church cannot allow such things. Those who are being abused physically uh, and and emotionally uh, are called and invited and should be helped, uh, those who are innocent, to flee and to get into a place of safety. And this is, to be clear, an act of marital abandonment, which justifies separation and may indeed, if the abuser will not uh, change, uh, will justify divorce. Well, some of the, these are some of the things that submission is not, but then what, what is submission and, and why is Paul emphasizing it? Well, four times in the New Testament, both Paul as well as the Apostle Peter instruct wives to submit to their husbands. Now, this isn't the husbands subjecting their wives, making them submit, not at all. It is the wife, uh, the, the verb is in the middle tense, the wife is voluntarily out of, their, out of her own will submitting to her husband. It's, it's, it's an act of, it's an attitude, not an action. And you can't make an action, or you can't make an attitude. It's something that has to come from the person's own will. It's this attitude that literally is putting yourself below. Now, there is a reciprocal action that we'll talk about in a minute, but we'll f- stay focused on this concept of submission in which the wife is being invited or called, like the Lord, who also submitted to lay herself in humility, this virtue of humility, uh, towards her husband. Submission has a hidden power within it, a hidden power that witnesses to power and has the, the, the power within it to actually change authority and power. We see this, for example, in Queen Esther, who, through amazing humility and submission, 
uh, before uh, her husband, the king, ended up, because of her humility, ended up saving Israel from destruction. Or if you look in 1 Peter chapter 3, a Christian's wife's submission to her husband, who is not a Christian yet, that submission, Peter says, has the ability to transform her husband's attitude and understanding. And, and there is an irony there in 1 Peter 3, if you look at it, in that her submission is actually an act of spiritual leadership. The humility of submission has this strength to change authority and power. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll go to from the husband-wife relationship to the, the child-parent relationship, where I, I had a, a remarkable experience with my own parents in which I experienced through submission a remarkable change uh, in my relationship with my parents. I was 22 years old, and my parents and I were deeply in disagreement over where I was going to go to seminary. I wanted to go to one place. They very much wanted me not to go there, though they didn't really have a strong suggestion on where to go. And we were butting heads for weeks and weeks and months and months. I did want their blessing, and I needed their financial support. And how could I possibly go to seminary without my Christian parents uh, getting behind it and blessing it? It was a hard situation until one day, I don't know exactly, I can't remember how it happened, but I came to this realization that I would just lay myself low before my parents. And I went before my mo mother and dad, and I said, Mom and Dad, I know we don't agree. I think I should go here, but I understand that you don't want me to, and I want you to know I will go wherever you want me to go, because I want your blessing. And I'll never forget what my father's response was. It totally, it totally stunned me, because he then came back and said, all right, tell me again, where do you want to go and why? <laughs> and it took me back. And from there, we then en ended up having this conversation in which he understood my heart and my motive, and both my parents did. And I, I began to understand why they had these serious reservations. And we were able, through this conversation, to find another way. It wasn't the school that, they, that I wanted to go to. It was a different school that none of us had even thought of. But it fit what I was looking for, and it fit what they were looking for. And I came to experience how this action of submission unto authority could actually change the, the heart of the authority itself. And so submission has this energy or this power to transform, which Christ lives into, and he invites us to live into even within our marriages. Well, so how does Christ's lordship transform power in our relationships? I'm suggesting it, it transforms power because we begin to realize that we're all equal, because he alone is Lord. It, it transforms power because submission itself, when lived into, has the ability within it to change, in a mysterious way, the authority itself, all for the better. But then third, Christ transforms power because he rearranges the very meaning of what it means to lead. And that leadership within the Christian vision is self-sacrificial love. Verse, uh, verse 18, or 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In the Greco-Roman world, the emphasis is on the husband's rights. But in the New Testament, the emphasis is on the husband's obligations to those who are around him, and his obligation is agabao. It's this divine love. What is this love? It's this love that lays itself 
down in sacrifice and in self-denial. Christ's love was action-oriented in which he did not pursue his own wishes, but he pursued the wishes of those who were placed under him. This wonderful, amazing love of our Lord. Hardly like the 1970s show, if you've ever seen it, All in the Family with Archie Bunker, who sits in his armchair smoking his cigar, telling his wife Edith to go get him another beer. That's not leadership. <laughs> Christian leadership is, is focused on service and on sacrifice of the self. We rightly celebrate leaders who sacrifice themselves on behalf of those who they're called to serve. And we loathe, do we not? We loathe those Christian leaders and others who either in word or in action make themselves first because we know it's not right and it grates against us and it should. Well, if this is the vision of, of, of Christian leadership, then how are decisions made between a husband uh, between a wife who is laying herself low and a, and a husband who is lifting up her, uh, his wife in this self-sacrificial, self-denying love. And I think that question really gets near the heart of what has often been called the complementarian and the egalitarian uh, debate uh, that my wife Tracy and I were, were arguing about on that, uh, on that road trip where we where were talking. Early on in our marriage, uh, Tracy and I had the opportunity of spending a significant amount of time with uh, Kathy and Dick Krager. Kathy was an evangelical leader of, of the biblical egalitarian movement, and she was the founder of Christians for Biblical Equality. Uh, Dick was, at least at the time that I knew him, he was a retired Presbyterian pastor, uh, and, he, and the, together they wrote quite a bit on this topic from the egalitarian perspective. I spent several summers working for the Craigers down on their uh, family estate, painting houses for them. And uh, as I lived with, lived with them for several summers, uh, I sat with them at the table, I watched Red Sox games with Dick, and I endlessly talked to Kathy about, partly about this, this very topic. Tracy and I learned, uh, Tracy spent some time there as well, and one of the surprising things that, uh, that we drew away from this relationship that we, that we had with uh, the Craigers, uh, who have both since passed away, was that even though they called themselves egalitarians, and we were, at the time, considering ourselves complementarians, we were looking, we were watching their lives lived out every day, and they were far more traditional in their roles than we were, and even how they made decisions. And we puzzled over this. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. We're complementarian, but we're for, far more egalitarian than they are. How can that be? And that uh, ultimately led my wife and I to come to a new view. We, we call it the complegalitarian view. <laughs> in which there's this reciprocity between, between husband and wife. She who lowers, her, lowers herself to him. He who raises uh, her up in self-sacrifice. Yes, there is a lead and follow relationship. I, I believe that, that that's very clear and maintained in the New Testament, but the roles are very fluid. Uh, they're not like the cultural roles that we, uh, we might uh, re receive, but we can change and mix and match um, at different seasons in our lives. And there is a reciprocity of, within our decision-making. And the reciprocity is when the wife says, my husband, 
You have the final decision. I'll do as you wish. And as I came to early on in our marriage, I, I realized there's no way that I am going to make a decision where Tracy has not given her complete input and consent and full agreement, especially anything that's important. And so once you begin to realize how these two things play off one another, it begins kind of into a, a wonderful, the, the very best kind of marital argument you can ever have, in which the, the one partner says, I want to do exactly what you want. And the, the other says, absolutely not. I want to do what you want. And that kind of argument is holy and joyful and it's the kind of relationship that's being envisioned, I believe, within this radical call around a transformation of power. And although we don't have time to go into it, this radical reciprocity that, that layers and lowers us all in this wonderful submission and wonderful love transforms the parent-child relationship. And it also, uh, by the way, transforms uh, the, the relationship around issues of slavery. Systems of both ancient and modern slavery, they cannot stand under this, under this dynamic that is being laid out by the Apostle Paul. Because if, because if masters are recognizing the equality of the, their bondservants, and bondservants aren't serving their masters, they're serving the Lord, the structures themselves all begin to fall apart. And the heart is changed and melted before the lordship of Christ. And so Jesus is lord over relationships. And his lordship is radically good. Radically good for each one of us to, to live into because it transforms power. Power which we used to try to manipulate and control one another. And all of a sudden power becomes something totally different. His lordship changes power because it emphasizes and points to this greater equality that we all need to acknowledge in every relationship. His lordship changes power because it elevates submission and we begin to see that it can actually witness to power and change the very heart of power when it's lived into. And his lordship changes relationships and power because we realize leadership is not what we are, the world says leadership is, but it's the self sacrificing love. Well, maybe you're married, maybe you're not. But most of us are, find ourselves enmeshed in power relationships. Uh, perhaps it's at home, uh, perhaps it's at work, perhaps it's in the church. Somewhere, I bet, there is power and it's playing havoc within, the relation, within a relationship that you have. And I want to give you some homework that you can work on this week with, with three simple steps. I want to challenge you if there's kind of that relationship in which is, is struggling to spend every day praying for the Holy Spirit to intervene into that relationship. Because we need to acknowledge none of us can solve. We don't have the strength, we don't have the wisdom to solve the, the, the tensions that exist. You need to call upon the Lord to, to work and to move within that relationship. So I challenge you every day to bring that relationship of struggle before the Lord, asking him to do something that only his grace can solve. But then secondly, I want to challenge you every day this week to examine yourself. Is there some way in which you need 
to change. Maybe you've been prideful or judgmental, and you need to repent. Or maybe within this relationship, you've become embittered, and there's truly the need to offer forgiveness. Or maybe you've withdrawn, or you've hardened your heart, and you said you're done with this person or this relationship. And maybe you need to ask the Lord to help you to soften your heart and to find a new way. And by God's grace, he indeed can do it. There's no promise, by the way, that there's going to be a reciprocity. That's the Christian vision. That's the ideal. But you can do your part if you're willing. If you're willing to humble yourself before our Lord, the true Lord, he can intervene and do something that only he can do. But then third... This week, I want you to ask the Lord to give you one specific way that you can, whether you're in the the lead position or the follow position, one specific way that you can live into the love of sacrifice or the humility that lays oneself down low. And perhaps the Spirit has something in store if you would dig in a little bit more and follow the teachings of God's holy word, you might see something remarkable in the relationship, but at at the very least in your life. Well, uh, Tracy and I had that discussion. It was very, it was indeed very heated, but we worked through it. And we worked through it by agreeing to say, well, we don't know. And let's just spend time learning and growing together to figure it out. And almost 21 years later, we're still learning. We're still growing. We still make mistakes. We still don't quite have the reciprocity right, but does anyone? Well, I, I had the privilege of uh, meeting one of the, uh, another married couple in our church, uh, John and Dorothy, who I'm going to invite to come right up to the microphone. Come on up. And one of the things as I was talking to John and Dorothy was I, I, I noticed how um, they hold hands. I was in a meeting with them, <laughs> and I'm like, what on earth? Did these, these two just get married? And then I asked him, how long have you guys been married? 52 years! And so I invited them to come up and share a few words of how how has that love been sustained in their relationship and where have they seen the Lord? Both Dorothy and I grew up regularly attending church. She a Roman Catholic, I a Protestant. She attended religious education classes and I Sunday school. Lots of planted seeds, but they didn't sprout for us until much later. Dorothy and I met in 1968 on a blind date, a Saturday of the last social weekend of my senior year at college. Later, I would find out the name Dorothy means gift from God. That blind date, the last weekend of my sophomore year in college. Within 10 minutes, I actually knew I was going to marry this guy. (laughs) Both the date and this revelation, we realized later, were works of the Lord. Uh, The chances of our ever seeing each other again were actually very, very slim. I, uh, for two years after that date, John and I were separated. He went to Naval OCS in Rhode Island then out to California to a civil engineer corps, naval school, then to Vietnam, 
then to Puerto Rico. All the while, I was in Pennsylvania in school finishing up. God was preparing us, preparing us by teaching us to decide to stay together, to be together through difficult times. Uh, we were in love and this other part of marriage decision was becoming very real to us. We had no honeymoon and set up house in a rented cottage just off base in Quonset Point, Rhode Island. Six weeks later, I left for another deployment, this time to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Like Vietnam, we were back to snail mail. I was up for orders uh, for my next tour of duty and was told I was being assigned to a small naval facility on Antigua as a department head, kind of my dream job. When I shared the news with Dorothy, she let me know that that would be too restricting. She wanted to go to Europe. <laughs> Although I didn't know what a husband's Christian headship responsibilities were, I instinctively knew that Dorothy's choice was far more important than my choice in our marriage. So we started our marriage in a two-year assignment to Morocco. Later, I realized how important it was to follow God's plan for our lives rather than my plan. We assumed our roles in marriage. John's role in my mind was financial provision. In my mind, my role was domestic provision. We didn't know the Lord. We were a team, however, but I did struggle. John worked very long hours. He left very early, came home very late. There were days when he did not see our baby son because he was not there. <laughs> uh, he worked many weekends, many nights, we, uh, I was the sole tale caretaker of our child, and we moved a lot. From that cottage in Rhode Island to the Quonset Point, uh, to, excuse me, a Quonset hut in Morocco. A Quonset hut is like a tin can cut in half, sits on the ground, <laughs> if you don't know what one is, to a series of suburban homes which we bought and sold, to a condo in the city, and to apartments. So there wasn't a lot of stability with backup friends, but it was, we were together. And uh, it, it, so there's something that John reminds me of that I always forget. I didn't even know I said it. But I did say, apparently, wherever you go, I will make a home. And with all these moves, that was part of my job. I left the Navy in November of 1972 and started work as a construction superintendent on Washington, D.C.'s new subway system. Long hours, weekend work, no time for church. Work moved us first to Concord, Massachusetts for work on the Tees Porter Square station and then Greenwich, Connecticut in 1985. While living in Greenwich, we attended church very infrequently. On Easter Sunday, 1990, just shy of our 20th year of marriage, our son suggested we try the Presbyterian Church of Old Greenwich, less than five minutes from our home, yet we never had visited. 
we walked into that very non-New Englandy Christian church. The Holy Spirit met us. He opened our heart and just quickened all those seeds which had been planted from former years in church, my religious education, his Sunday school. We came to know the Lord at that moment and we looked around and saw other Christians deeply bonded in friendship, just like we see here. And these people, both there and here, have really improved and deepened our Christian faith and our marriage. The minister's sermon on that gospel profoundly affected both of us to accept Christ as our savior on that Easter Sunday. The Lord's presence was affirmed in my life several months later at a Trastias retreat when I felt the Holy Spirit dwell within me in accordance with Ephesians 1.13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When the Big Dig brought us back to Boston in 1997, Evangelical Christian friends from our church in Greenwich recommended Park Street Church. Here we found men and women of deep faith that formed a community to nurture us in our walk with Christ. It was during this time of maturation in my faith that I realized that Christ was walking alongside me before I met Dorothy and walking alongside us in our marriage. Although through our dear friends here, we have come to rely on the Lord for all things, especially to watch over our marriage, that we may always love one another with Christ's help. Did coming to faith in Christ 32 years ago change our, and deepen our already deeply loving and committed relationship? Yes. Did Christ remove all trials and tribulations? No, <laughs> just as emphatically. We went through, and it was together we went through this, a physical trial starting in 2016 when I was really debilitated with pain for several years. Through people at this church, a particular elder at an anointing service, who led me, she was a physician, still is, led me to a physician with whom she could connect. And his, his care and the prayer of people in this church and a wonderful hymn that was given to me by a close friend, How Firm a Foundation, a hymn that I give to others when they're going through difficult times. I've been relieved of much of my pain, able to function, praise God. Becoming strong believers has made us understand how God worked from that blind date up to the time we accepted Christ and how he continues to work in our lives up to today. We don't have a recipe to pass along to you. There's no book for us. We, we are together, we spend time together, we take walks, we hold hands, just like Michael said. <laughs> we pray together and we enjoy each other's company. More importantly, we have a covenant. 
We loved each other deeply, and we still do. We decided to stay together. God ratified that covenant for us at the altar on June 6, 1970. We stay true to that, and he stays true to holding us together. As our commitment grows, our love grows and deepens. It's truly a miracle that God takes two totally individual people, binds them together, and makes them one. May God bless you all. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we realize that there is no recipe but you alone. And so we give you our marriages, our families, our work lives, our church. We declare and recognize that you and you alone are Lord, and we need you. Would you pour yourself into us? Make us more like you in your humility and in your love. Only you can do it, Lord. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen.